Welcome back to Warrior's Den. So this one is a blog post series podcast. And this one is actually not originally written by me. It is written by Evan, who was recently on the podcast itself. You can check out episode 64 if you want to learn a bit more about Evan. He is a Kravist, a father, an Australian. But this series is sort of about are you a good training partner? He started a series, but life got in the way, so he made a few posts, and I'll fill in the blanks. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Kramaga. And you can follow us on Instagram at Urban Tactics Kramaga, on Twitter, Urban Tactics KM, Facebook, Urban Tactics Kramaga, and of course, our blog is utkmblog.com. That's actually where you will find the older episodes of this podcast, the less refined versions. I say refined, but, you know, I'm still the same person. Just more uh, growth, etc. You can find that on the podcast tab. You can also see about the PAL course. We do teach the Canadian Firearm Safety Course and Canadian Restricted Firearm Safety Course. Uh, Maybe I'll do a whole episode on firearm safety from a Canadian perspective. I've talked about it before, but anyways. And you can find all our blog posts there on a variety of topics. That's utkmblog.com. And if you like this podcast and you like uh, our blog, there's a bunch of ways you can support us because, you know, 2020 sucked, um, especially as a martial arts school. Now, the easiest way for everybody is you can simply donate. If you go to the support us tab at utkmblog.com, you can simply give us money. By that, I mean donate. We are not a charity, so you won't get tax write-off. But if you'd like us stuff, anything helps. Now, I fully understand that even in the largest of podcasts, people don't do that. They don't even like to pay for anything. So there are some other options where you actually get something other than listening to my voice. You can also sign up at utkmu.com. And utkmu is an online platform where I post our curriculum in video format. Eventually, there'll be more. But again, the more you support the podcast, the more time I can dedicate to that. I plan on doing a lot with that website once I really get it rolling. Probably in a... Well, the more you donate, the more I can do. So utkmu.com, you can sign up as little as $15 a month subscriptions to get access to our videos, which are meant for training in coordination with a Kramaga instructor. You can do it on your own, but, you know, whatever. Don't ask us for ranking. Not doing that. Come train with us if you want that. You can also support us on that same page. You can go to the Support Us tab, and you can click on some Amazon affiliate links of products that I use or books that I support right now, slowly building up what I want to put up there, such as the coffee that I drink and some of the supplements I use. I'll add to that list as we go. And, of course, various books I recommend have read in the last year. If you want to want to support us, you can use those affiliate links through Amazon. Right, of course, I love it if you do the UTKMU option or just donate money. But if you want to buy some products that you like, use our affiliate links. Uh, again, nothing that's there that I don't personally use or recommend. So it's not just some random crap. So there is that. And yeah, I think that's it for uh, what you can do to support us and continue this podcast and blog. Anyways, so again, back to this. This one is about uh, a series written by Evan on how to be a good training partner. So let's listen. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you 
by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. Okay, before we start, a couple things. Um, there is an initial podcast, uh, podcast post where he lists a couple things, and he didn't end up writing all of the posts for each individual one due to family and job changes, etc. But I will fill in the blanks. The opinions and statements I make in between the posts are not Evans. They're mine. I'm basically commenting on what he said. Sometimes I agree with him. Sometimes I don't. And I'm adding on to them. With the actual blog posts, uh, though it's my voice, it's Evan who wrote them. So just some context on that. So here's the first introductory one. Are you a good training partner? Are you a good training partner? Are you the guy that as soon as the instructor says pair up, everyone looks at hoping you will train with them or are you the guy the people avoid making eye contact with until everyone else has paired up and you get a reluctant partner? So what makes a good training partner? Here are a list of what I find to be some of the most important points. Turning up. In my experience, training martial arts, as well as working with teams of people in the construction and hospitality industries, first and foremost, the thing that makes a good partner in any situation is turning up. Not just being there, but being mentally focused and physically active, especially in martial arts, where someone not paying attention can mean injuries. You need to be focused on the task at hand, knowing what both you and your partner are expected to do and executing those duties with enthusiasm and commitment. No one wants to train with a guy who is constantly asking what they are supposed to be doing or just lacks physical commitment to the training, whether that means holding pads or playing an aggressor. Listening to the instructors. Secondly, once you have turned up, pay attention to your instructor and listen to the instructions. There is nothing worse than performing a combination or series of techniques and your partner isn't where they are supposed to be or isn't reacting appropriately. I experienced this recently while practicing getting up from the ground as an aggressive attacker approaches you. The drill goes like this. The attacker pushes the defender with a kick shield. The defender falls to the ground and performs a break fall. The attacker then walks towards the defender. The defender stabilizes themselves and kicks the attacker's knees, of course, in the kick shield, keeping them at distance and then getting up, facing the attacker in a fighting stance. My situation was that my partner pushed me back with the kick shield, but as I performed my break fall, stood four feet away from me and didn't move in. So it was impossible for me to complete the technique because my partner was A, in the wrong place, and B, standing static and not moving forward, all because they didn't listen to the explanation of the drill by the instructor. Pad holding. There is somewhat of an art to holding pads. Well, and it does take a little time to learn. But there are some basics that you need to grasp, not just to give the best experience to your partner, but also to avoid injuries, yours and theirs. The two main types of pads we use are focus mitts and kick shields, sometimes tie pads, so I will limit my discussion to these. When using focus mitts, the mitt itself typically represents your opponent's head, but in some cases their body or groin. With that in mind, hold them in a position that corresponds to the body parts. For example, 
you are training a jab cross punch combination keep the pads at your head height and close to where your head would be though not right in front of your face as you risk a blow to your face with the back of the pads avoid holding them more than shoulder width apart as this is not a realistic target for your partner and it is a good way to injure your own shoulder as the strike connects with the mitt treat it like it's catching a ball you want to add a little forward force so that there is resistance for a person punching, which helps them to avoid hyperextending their elbow. Kick shields, as the name implies, are typically used for striking with the legs and feet. The key with this type of pad is to hold it tight and close to your body. People have a tendency to try holding this type of pad off their body, assuming that the shield will absorb all of the force. But what really happens is the shield is slammed back against your body. This also allows for a lot of movement in the shield and often results is your partner kicking the foot, sliding off at an unexpected angle, possibly hitting you and or causing an ankle or knee injury to your partner. Providing a realistic attack. Providing a realistic attack is another key to being a good partner. If you are training and to block a punch to the head, I'm not suggesting you try to knock your partner out, but if they do nothing or offer a weak block, you should make light contact with their chin, nose, or cheekbone, depending on where you're aiming at. I can't tell you how many times I faced punches that were falling short by several inches or landing way out to either side of my head. This is obviously not a realistic attack. As a result, I have to perform a different movement to defend the attack, and this isn't a muscle memory I want to train. Similarly, if you are putting chokes or holds onto your partners to use enough force that they have to fight to get out of it, if you offer no resistance to the defense they are training, they will be stuck wondering why it is not working and probably really shocked at how it feels if it ever happens in real life. Watch your distance. Everyone's range is different. And all of your natural weapons, legs, elbows, kicks, knees, punches, and headbutts have different ranges. You need to match your range to the range of your partner and what they need for the weapons they are using. So, if you are working with someone much taller or shorter than you, don't stand where your range is. Stand at or hold the pads at their range so they can correctly train the strikes they are practicing. It is also important to maintain this range when we train in dynamic mode. If your partner moves in, move back to match. If they move back, move in to match. Watch your power. Power control is one of the most important training concepts, especially when sparring but also when working with pads or holding and grappling often. Rules set out a 10 to 15 power limit, percent power limit. But if you are much larger or stronger than your partner, remember that your 15% is likely more than theirs. So try to let your partner set the power level if they are smaller or less experienced. Likewise, if you are using pads and unload on a kick shield held by someone 40 pounds smaller than you, you will probably send them flying across the room. Final thoughts. I'll elaborate further on most of these points in subsequent blog posts, but these are basics are here. If you want to be a good training partner and always have people happy and wanting to train with you, turn up, listen to your instructor, hold the pads wisely, provide realistic attacks, watch your distance, and watch your power. And please, for anyone that trains with me, please call me out if I'm not being a good training partner. I promise I won't take it personally. Written by Evan J. UTKM Yellow Belt. Okay, so just a little intro there. Um, this actually really ties into a series that I'll release eventually on Ego, if you haven't already listened to it at this point. Um, 
There are many things that make a good school, and one of them is the acceptable behavior of training partners. You know, some gyms you go into and they're just meathead gyms, the old school gyms where they just want to kick the crap out of each other. You're not going to find the soccer moms in those ones. Other gyms are aimed at that other group, the soccer moms, right? Uh, I'm in the belief if you're going to teach stuff, you should, as an instructor, teach properly. Like teach the proper system. Don't do watered down stuff. Don't don't dilute things for business practices. But really make an effort to teach people properly. Now you can adjust the level of difficulty, higher or lower, depending on who's there. But one of the things about instructors, you really need to build the culture at your school and what your expectations are of individuals. And if you do a good job, you instill this mentality into the students themselves, so that they're good training partners. You know, at UTCAM. An expectation is you're responsible for yourself. I am responsible you to a degree because legal ramifications of being an instructor, but you need to take responsibility for yourself, something that people don't do. And a, a good example I'll talk about later is you hold the pad, you get hit because you were looking off in la-la land or whatever. That's your problem. That's not my problem because I give you a warning. Don't hold the pads properly, you'll get hit. That's your fault, right? So you have to really, as an instructor, instill the correct mentality now of course you have to step in when training partners are incorrectly matched uh either because of skill or attitude or personal problems of course you need to resolve personal problems which are always difficult a lot of instructors don't like to because you know people suck and it's hard to deal with interpersonal issues i try to again instill the uh individual responsibility if you don't like someone don't make a big deal in class just don't partner with them um so I'll go through each of the individual things that Evan discussed after each post and expand on them. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot I could say about this because as an instructor, I have been teaching for many years and a lot of people come in with all sorts of ideas, expectations, standards, and really aren't training properly. And no matter how much you tell them, they just don't know how to be a good training partner. So it's something to be aware of. You, Though martial arts are an individual sports, it's very easy to forget that you're part of a training experience with other people and you need to have other people's training experience in mind, not just your own, even though with martial arts, it's usually the people who, to be honest, are socially awkward and don't do very well in team sports. I'm horrible in team sports environments. And uh, that's why I was drawn to martial arts. So you have to be aware that it is both a you experience and a training partner experience. Because without good training partners, your experience sucks and your development is hindered. And the better skill set and the better attitude everyone has in the gym and the better training partners everyone is, um, the better. Now, of course, try to teach and correct your training partners, but don't be a teacher. Because I have had students who may... Uh, have a certain belt rank, but they they got the belt rank because of they met the milestone. But their skill set and ability to communicate said skill set is not good. So you also have to be careful what you're teaching uh, your fellow training partners. Is it does it match what's being taught in the gym? Is it appropriate? Like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is an example where you can totally teach something that wasn't taught in the gym within reason, of course, um, because of the wide variety of skill sets. Um, what would not be appropriate, say, for UTKM or any Krav Maga school is if you're learning UTKM curriculum or you're learning IKMF curriculum or you're learning KMG or IKF curriculum and you're supposed to be prepping them for something and you're teaching some curriculum from outside of that, 
right? It depends. Now, as a lead instructor, I'll throw in other stuff periodically, but if you're like, hey, this is what we're learning today as part of the curriculum, and you start teaching and helping your training partners, make sure you're actually teaching them what you're supposed to be. So that's also, Ivan didn't cover that, but that's, that's uh, something. So let's just move into it and start with his first one, which is turning up. So let's have a listen. Turning up. Turning up, continuing from, are you a good training partner? Turning up. With Kramaga classes, as with most and everything in life, turning up is the first key to success. Now, by this I don't simply mean being physically in the room. Yes, getting to class on time is important. But turning up for your classmates and instructors means more than that. Continuing on from Are You a Good Training Partner? Come to class regularly. This is important. Often concepts and techniques will build on one another, and if you consistently miss classes, you will eventually fall behind. You won't be able to keep up with the more complex techniques or concepts, which means that either your partner or the instructor will end up having to stop and explain things to you, which means less active training time for your partner. This also means that you may struggle to perform more complex movements as you have not adequately practiced the basics to a level where you can build on them. Pay attention. You need to ensure that you are mentally switched on while training, meaning paying attention to your instructors. Once again, just because you are there and there regularly doesn't mean you are guaranteed to learn anything. Let's face it, not many of us can learn through osmosis. Actively listen when things are being explained, and while chatting with the person next to you, you might seem like fun. It's rude to your instructor, and if you disrupt the class, then it's rude towards your fellow students as well. Furthermore, if you're chatting or daydreaming, you aren't listening, as noted above. If you don't listen when drills are being explained, you might find out that you're wasting valuable time trying to play catch-up, or worse, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you end up getting kicked or punched by your partner though this often makes for a quick learning curve. Actively participate. If you're in a classroom or lecture hall, raise your hand and ask or answer questions. If you're in a Krav Maga class, speak up when you're asked for input, and then do the drill. Sure, no one likes to be the dummy that's getting kicked in the groin, but that's part of Krav Maga training. You take the fun with not-so-fun. If you're not giving every part of the drills the same attention and enthusiasm on every drill, then you're not really actively participating in the class. If you don't understand something, ask. Just keep the questions relevant. Keep the energy up. Now, I know we don't all have the energy of a five-year-old after the fifth espresso every day, but you need to turn up the class ready to commit to a full class. If you're not providing a committed and energetic attack for your partner during drills, then you're not giving them the opportunity to learn what a realistic attack feels like. And if their technique could successfully defend against it, even in between drills, whether it's getting pads or putting on gear, do it with a bit of pep in your step. Don't waste everyone's limited training time just because you're feeling like taking it a little easier today. I don't mean you have to be rushing every time you go do something, but keep your tempo up. Act with a sense of urgency and don't let your heart rate drop too much. Be prepared. Turning up can begin before you even get to class. Make sure you have all of your protective gear, groin guard, mouth guard, helmet and gloves, and bring a water bottle. Try to show up hydrated. Periodically, check that your uniform is clean. No one wants to train with a guy with 
whose shirt who smells like B.O. And if you're anything like me who sweats, bring a towel. Because while I don't expect to come out of class without getting a little of someone else's sweat on me, it's a good option to be able to wipe down yourself or the equipment you're using. Help out where you can. If you're working with a newer or less experienced person and they are having trouble, help them out if you can. Just be careful not to start teaching. At the end of the class, help clean up and put away equipment used. Being a good student and a good classmate doesn't start and stop when you bow in and out. If you are turning up for your school, take a little pride and do your part. These are some of the things that turning up means to me. It may mean more or less to you, but if you have never thought about what it means or wondered what they are, this should serve as a starting point for you to decide what type of student you want to be. Written by Evan J. Uticam Yellowbelt. Now, I'm going to be real honest. The term turning up, this is the first time I heard it. I guess it's an Australian thing. Evan's Australian, if you didn't know. Uh, funny colloquialisms. Do you speak another language or do you really speak another language? Right? If I go to Australia, I'm not going to understand all the slang for quite some time. But anyways, turning up, from what I interpretation of it, is you show up mind, body, and soul ready to train. Right, now let's go through a point by point. Come to class regularly. I cannot stress this enough. If you disappear, if you have a hat, like I have lots of students like that, and I'm sorry, but that's not how you get good, that they'll come for three months regularly, disappear for six months, come back three months, two months, disappear. You know, I understand life happens, but if you're really building a lifestyle, there's no reason not to show up in one way or form. Even if it's once a month, that's not great, but that's still better. Don't disappear for long periods of time. Um, I have students who regularly miss the same chunk of curriculum over and over again because for whatever reason, that's the time of the year they disappear. Now, I cycle my curriculum generally every six months, five, like just repeated. One through four in the white belt curriculum blocks and then one through six in the in the other curriculums. You just repeat it constantly. So if some people just skip entire blocks either intentionally or otherwise. That's not how you get good. You need to train regular. Uh, novices often skip judo month. Stop doing that. Right? You need to learn it. Um, coming regularly and getting consistent training is so much more important for your overall development than going ham for a week and disappearing and going ham for a month and disappearing. You need slow, consistent adjustments to your training. The person who is slow and steady will almost always be better on average. Again, on average, there's always exceptions to the rule, but if you're not that, then stop trying to be Come to class regularly. That is part of a good training partner. And the other thing is you can build up really good training relationships. Like often I have some good training partners that, you know, we push each other and we know each other's game and we know how to do stuff and we really drive it forward and move forward. And, and without a training partner who really knows what you're doing, it can be hard to develop because if someone doesn't know how you move, they can't challenge you. If someone knows exactly what you're doing and knows what you like to do, they can challenge you heavily to be better. So coming to class regularly not only helps with your personal development and skill development mentally, physically, and otherwise, but it can also help your training partner's development because you can challenge them better. So let's move on to the next one. Pay attention. For the love of God, when I'm trying to teach, stop talking. Right? 
Um, now I feel like a bit of an ass on this one because I was the kid in high school that was so bored with status quo education that I would kind of do my own thing half the time. Uh, I think in bio 12, I talked through half the class. Now that's what you get for forcing me to be there, right? When I don't want to be there, but in a thing like martial arts, nobody's forcing you to be there. You are choosing to be there. You are paying for it. In fact, when you pay for it, don't you want to pay attention because you're paying for it? Uh, I had a very different attitude when I went to universities. I would still be slightly distracted, but I wouldn't disrupt the class because like, I'm paying for it and other people are paying for it. And they don't want you to be disruptive to everyone because you need attention or you can't pay attention. Um, I understand some people have difficulties paying attention and some people don't like listening. We talk about a little Evan in the podcast. I actually did with Evan where he likes that more come in and do, do go, 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 style, which is fine sometimes, but you need to have more than that if you're going to develop your overall skills. Uh, So I have students that will continue talking when I'm talking. It's rude. It's obnoxious, disrespectful. People are paying for this. Uh, I'll have people that I'll explain it and they're literally looking off in space. These are the students that drive me the most nuts, right? Because they're literally not learning. If you have attention problems, you know you have attention problems. You're paying for something, and you're still not paying attention. You need to actively recognize that you have problems paying attention, and when I explain what we're doing, and you sit there and say, oh, I'm sorry, what were we doing? I like... Well, half the time, I almost want to say, get the fuck out. I'm not going to do that the first time, to be honest. But I have, I have had and have students that they've done the drill before, like 20 times throughout the last two or three years. And you'll explain, hey, this is what we're doing, this drill. Any questions with the drill? Does anyone not know how to do the drill? Everyone starts getting started, and the students will sit there and stand and say, wait, sorry, what are we doing? I'm confused. You're a bad training partner. If you're doing that, you have learning issues, you have uh, pay uh, like attention issues. Okay. But if, uh, if the instructor doesn't know, tell them, but if it's been a year or two or three or four years of the same behavior, you're, you're just a bad training partner. I don't know what else to say because when me as the instructor, any instructor has to go back for the millionth time to explain something that you should hypothetically know how to do, you're just being disrespectful to everybody right so i know a lot of people are like that's harsh john too bad people need to stop cuddling people's bad behavior right and if you're just not capable of doing that you need to be really conscious and if you're not capable of being a good training partner then maybe consider doing something else you know it's very frustrating not just for me as an instructor other instructors and other training partners that you just can't get it so pay attention which links heavily to actively participate, right? So you need to be consciously engaging. Now, The this is a bit of a different one. Now, I ask, does anyone have a question? Now, I am so used to nothing, just silence, that often I just go, okay, and move on. Now, I recognize as an instructor that this is a bad uh, behavior overall because what if people do have questions and I cut them off, but it's, it's like, man, I ask, does anyone have questions? And a lot of times people know, 
If the reason you're not asking questions is because you don't have any questions to ask, great, cool. I hope I did it right or the instructor did it right. But if you're not asking questions because you don't want me to be critical of the question or you don't want to be put on the spot or you don't, I'm sorry, you're not actively participating. The only way you can clarify it, what's going is asking questions. This is not related to the pay attention thing that I just went on a rant about because that's a behavioral problem that's consistent. But if it's a new concept or if you generally just didn't understand the thing someone just said, ask, like, could you please clarify this? This actually comes to um, learning process, right, and communication. You don't understand what someone just said. Don't be let your ego get in the way because you didn't understand it and you don't want to look stupid. Ask, yes, there is such, such a thing as a stupid question if it's completely unrelated to what's going on. Now, my students will know I'll have a tendency to answer them anyway, but I can see why this is frustrating for other students. So pay attention to what's being said so that you can actively participate, which includes good questions. And the other aspect of this is the physical. I have, not often, the first one, that thing about asking questions is more common, but the often, no, actually, not often, I have had these students that refuse to do the drill. Refuse. Hey, this is what we're doing refuse and listen i'll scale i'll tell okay i'll put you with an easier partner i'll put you with a more experienced person who can be more patient with you i have had students say i'm not doing that i refuse now i'm not talking about say someone who has trauma and and doesn't feel comfortable being touched yet you know i can go in depth in if i haven't in other things about that you maybe you need to work with a therapist or you're not ready for this kind of training yet though i think it's an important part of your recovery but i'm just saying you don't like the drill i'm refusing if you if you that's your attitude and you're not actively participating and you refuse to do stuff and I'll scale no problem I'll make it so that you can f- I can find a way to do it that's krav maga we adjust for such things then you shouldn't be there because now you're not learning you're just aggravating everyone a lot of instructors may not be as good as coming up with an adaptive thing on the spot and you're just making it so they don't want to try it so you need to both actively participate mentally and physically All right krav maga is gonna be hard even even if it's toned down a little, it's going to be hard. You just have to get used to that. So active participation is really good. I guess a lot of people just get so used to like, I don't know, higher education where they can sit there and not say a word the whole damn class. And then the instructors really don't know if they actually know. And then come test time, they just memorize a few things, forget it later. Or, you know, they can just cheat by looking stuff up in advance and people i think the modern education system really doesn't teach people to actively participate i remember that uh, i forgot what university course probably one where i was pissed off at the professor to be honest and uh i remember they were going on i I know exactly the professors now i they should not have been a professor disgusting what's happened to some areas of higher academia anyways going on and on and on and on about how proud they are of teaching critical thinking and making people think for themselves and i said i'm sorry how do you know? I'm paraphrasing, I vaguely remember. Um, what do you mean? I said, like, 90% of this class doesn't say a word, ever. You never put people on the spot. You never challenge people in the moment. You have zero way of knowing if they're actually aware consciously of what you're teaching. You're not checking their critical thinking because they're not actively participating and you can't check in real time because you don't do that that's how you check if people are actively participating 
and paying attention is you have to catch them in real time. And Kramaga, you know how I know you're actively participating? You're doing it. I can see you doing it. And if you're not paying attention related to the first one, you'll get hit in the face accidentally. Right? So you got to ask questions and you got to participate. And if you're not, it's very easy in martial arts to tell that you're not. You're not doing it. And there's no way of knowing. So just a thought. Actively participate with questions. And you can contri- if the instructor and the, the, the um, culture of the class is that you can add to it with comments that are appropriate and relevant, by all means. I am fine with that. A lot of people are not. So it depends on the class, of course. So next one. Keeping the energy up. Now, I have no problem, no ego here. I have a, I'm a to- notoriously low energy person. I'm not a natural athlete. It is difficult for me to keep pace. But, and in my classes, I don't expect you to go 100% all the time constantly. We'll do it sometimes. But, you know, I understand not everyone has the energy, as he put it, as a five-year-old. Everyone has different energy levels. And... um. You need to be aware that if you're just not feeling it today, now I personally don't have an issue with this, that you just say, listen, like I need to go soft today. These are the reasons. If you're a regular student, it's not a big deal. Uh, If you're a brand new student who refuses to go hard, that's a different story. But uh, try your best to match the energy of the class if you can, right? Uh, it's a lot easier, actually, if there's more people than less. And it's very difficult, even as an instructor, to maintain high energy as a lower energy person when there's two people there. When there's 10, 15, 20 person, it's easy to keep your energy aloft. Just feed off of other people, right? Um, I'm not saying you have to be a positive person all the time. That's not what I mean, because I hate positivity for the sake of positivity. I think it's pointless. But you need to be training to the degree, right? You know, now be aware, like if you're a really high energy athlete and you're with someone who's not and you're getting frustrated and you're being rude about it, you're you're being a bad training partner. That's up to you to pick your training. Unless your instructor put you specifically with someone for a reason, there's usually a reason if they're a good instructor. You need to be patient. Some days you'll be able to be high energy. Some days you will not be able to be high energy. Just the way it is. But I think what Evan's getting at is just... You know, be there. Put your energy into trying to do the class properly. Don't just play. Right? And if you're having a bad day, if you actually burn off your energy, it might be very helpful for your mental and physical health. Just saying. So, I, I think that's it. I don't think I have too much to say about that point specifically. Okay, so be prepared um, for this. Bring your gear. If you want to spar and you forget your mouth guard, too bad. If you uh, forget your water bottle, well, there's a tap. Drinking water here is very good. What if you're in a place that doesn't have good drinking water? Like you literally drink the tap water in Vancouver. It's not an issue. Um, but if you forget it, I'm just going to be like, too bad. And hopefully you're hydrated. I'll st- of course, I'll recognize if you're about to pass out, but you should be hydrated anyway. Make sure you're clean. Nails. You know, a lot of people forget to cut their nails or they cut them weird and they're really sharp. Or they don't shower. Like if you come from a manual labor job, go shower before you come. It's just uh, not good. Especially in this heightened time of necessity of cleanliness. You should be aware of that. Shower and train. Okay? It's pretty expected. Make sure you have your gear. Show up with proper hygiene. And be mentally ready not to be disruptive. 
and pay attention as we've been getting it. This one's pretty straightforward, but you, you'd be shocked at how many people forget stuff. Have a gym bag. Put everything in the gym bag. Don't forget it. You can't train properly without your gear. I can adapt to a degree, but not entirely. Oh, yeah, and help out with you again. It is actually my expectation that if you've been training with me for a long time, you're going to show up and help out with the tests. In fact, if you if I don't see that, you're not helping to build the school, you're not interested in beyond yourself, I'm not going to promote you to the higher levels and just won't. And I think I bring that from traditional martial arts, not just Krav Maga, because I believe in community and I just don't see community out there in the global world for the most part. And I find it exceptionally ridiculous. So if you're able to help out, do so. That could also mean you see a student struggling, help them out. Again, don't be the teacher. If, you, if you're not 100% sure, or let's do the Jeff Bezos rule, 70% sure that you're teaching them correctly or reasonably correctly, because I'll come by and correct. I don't expect 100%. Then don't, but help out where you can. You know, Clean up after the classes. Be a good training partner, right? Even though martial arts, again, is an independent thing, a lot of socially awkward people who are bad at team stuff, like myself, do martial arts. Don't forget about your training partners. If you don't help the school, if you don't help your training partners, if you don't help everyone, you are actually detracting from your learning experience. And I know it does not seem like that, but it does. The more people that are vested emotionally and otherwise in your school, the better it will be for absolutely everyone. Maybe today the training isn't how you'd like it to be too bad. Maybe it'll be next time. If you say, hey, we haven't gone hard for a long time, message the instructor. Say, hey, next time in there, can we go hard? And then you time it. Or if it's like, hey, this, you've been going really hard lately. Can we tone it down for a class? Sure. Right? You gotta. You can't go hard or soft all the time. Right? Uh, helping out, that includes, that is part of helping out. Hey, you know, uh, tell the instructor if something's wrong also. Some, a lot of people don't want to say anything because they don't want to cause drama. Like... Leaders don't know something is wrong if nobody tells them something. This idea that the leader, oh, if they're a really good leader, they'll always know. No, not always. People are really good at deceiving and lying and manipulating. If it's in front of everyone, yeah, the instructor should know. But, you know, helping out includes tell the instructor when something is serious wrong. Like, if you have serious problems and I don't know about it and I can't see it, what do you want me to do about it? Right? Or that someone else is having serious problems, you know, if it's appropriate to do so, of course, if someone confides in you private information, yeah, then maybe don't go blurting it out to everyone. But if it's a serious problem and the instructor needs to know about it, then, you know, it's something it's something to know. So helping out where you can, it's all over the map, helping out other students in class. If you want to help them out of class, that's completely up to you. You don't have to, but helping out where you can is more to do with in class and helping out. Uh, maybe you helping out outside of class, of course, could be giving someone a ride, making sure they show up. Of course, if it becomes a, a burden for you, then that's a different story. Then you have to have a conversation with that person. Like, dude, like, if you want me to drive you, I can, but show up, etc. You know, this is why interpersonal stuff. That's why generally I tend to be more about help out in the class, clean up, help other students where you can, help the school, help you know, etc. Help the tests. That's part of being a good training partner. The more people help, the bigger and better your school can be. So that is that. Now, let's talk about pad holding. Pad holding. Continuing from Are You a Good Training Partner? There is a fine art to holding pads for someone. 
and there are people out there who make a lot of money holding pads for the pros. While I am not expecting you to flawlessly shift the pads to catch a 15 combo strike for the likes of Conor McGregor, if you are training regularly, you should have a firm grasp on how to safely and effectively hold pads for your partners so that you both get the best out of your session and come out without injuries. So, here are a few places to start if you're not sure how to properly hold pads for people and points to focus on if you want to up your pad game a little. Each time you hold a pad, whether it be focus mitts or a kick shield, you have to understand that the pad is there to represent a body part, one that we are training to attack. Therefore, you position your pads to make sure they are in a position that mimics the body part of the opponent. The center of the pad should align with the same part of the body. So keep your focus mitts at head height for punches, kick shields at your knees height for low roundhouse kicks, and at your torso for push kicks or knees. Of course, you can't just hold the pad directly in front of your body and expect to be absorbed. Which brings me to my next point. Safety. The pads are there to provide a target for your partner to strike, more so than they are designed to keep you as a pad holder safe or protected. To hold pads safely, you need to keep your body in a position and stance that can take the impact without causing your joints to hyperextend or bend in directions they weren't meant to. For your basic jab cross, hooks, and uppercuts, the targets we are training to strike is usually the head, so as I said earlier, you need to hold the focus mitts or target pads at your head height. Obviously, you can't hold them in front of your face unless you want to cop a blow in the face from the back of your own hand, so you need to hold them at either side of your head, again, mimicking a real opponent's positioning. That being said, if you're holding the pads further out than shoulder width apart, they are no longer in a position that resembles a realistic head position. So here's my guide on how to hold focus mitts. Let's start with positioning. Just either side of your head about 30 centimeters or one inch in front of your shoulders. Note, or one foot. Note what this range works best. For me, you may want to adjust accordingly to your arm length. This positioning is important for two reasons. It increases the target as close as your real head position as possible. It protects your shoulders from hyperextension and your face from the back of your own head. Now, once you have the mitts at the right position, here's how you use them. Imagine you are catching each punch. The distance in front of your shoulders becomes really important, as you need to add a little bit of forward resistance to meet the incoming strike. This catching motion and added resistance pays off twofold. It protects your shoulders by not letting your hands fly backwards over them from the force of the punch, and it stops your partner's arms from hyperextending and damaging their elbows. That covers your basic straight jab cross 1-2 punch. For your hooks, 3-4, everything remains the same except you turn your mitts 90 degrees to face inward and apply resistance inward. With uppercuts, 5-6, hold the pads facing downwards, one on top of another, at your chin height, still within distance from your face, and apply resistance downward to catch the impact. As you become comfortable with each individual strike, work on combinations. Slow at first, speed will come in time. Kick shields are different animal completely, as they are used for a much larger range of strikes and will mimic more parts of the body of their opponent. 
they deserve their own post. So perhaps I'll cover it in the future. Okay, so let's start with pad holding. It is an art in itself. I knew someone who was so good at holding pads, people wanted to pay them just to hold pads. It. Some people are really good at holding pads, and some people are not. Like a lot of boxing... Uh, Coaches are just really good at holding pads and understand combos, and they can teach it really well. Now, Evan is specifically talking about holding folk smiths or similar. We do use tie pads sometimes, and we definitely use kick shields. But understanding how to hold pads for other people is extremely important. Now, remember, it is a skill in itself, and luckily for us in our school, we don't go crazy, crazy with the combos. Just remember, if you see someone doing like a 15, 20 hit, 30 hit combo, that looks amazing. They probably drilled it for like half an hour before they filmed it. Not always, um, but sometimes. So, you know, safety is if you don't hold the pad properly, you're going to get hurt, which goes to if you're not paying attention. It's your fault if you get hit and you're holding the pads. I will laugh. That's the rule at our school. Grow up. You get hit, just accept it. You need to pay attention. Now, of course, if someone's hitting way too hard, like I don't want to hold pads for a 250-pound kickboxer. It's just not smart. People my size do it, and they regret it. And if you do it for a lifetime of it, you're going to destroy your body. I'm not holding pads at full force for someone that big. So that means if you're holding pads, if you're because sometimes in Kramaga we do partner with different sizes and shapes for, for diversity's sake and just getting a different experience. If you're 250 pounds and the person is 100 pounds and they're holding the pads for you, do not kick full force, okay? It's just called respect to your training partner. Slow, smooth, smooth is fast anyway, so it's not not too bad, right? Um, as a pad holder, though, you need to hold them properly. I have students who just, even basic stuff, they don't want to hold. Dude, I have 8-year-old students sometimes that hold pads just fine, like just fine. You know, I have have some families I teach and the kids hold the pads for their parents who are way if they can do it you can do it so instead of saying I can't do it and I'm not talking holding for a pro boxer doing a 15 hit combo I'm 1-2 basic stuff if you can't do it you're being a disrespectful training partner just saying now it's also dangerous to yourself and the training partner if you're moving I have had pad holders intentionally or unintentionally move the pad dramatically out of the way and I've hit other things that I shouldn't have hit because of that. Like the pad should give enough resistance that it's as if you're hitting someone, but not so much resistance that either party is getting hurt. Right? And if you are throwing a full force thing and you move the pad out of the way, you, you're going to hurt someone. Right? So you, you don't want to do that. And the other thing, again, you need to put resistance when they're impacting it so it feels like they're hitting something. So, again, I'm not an expert on pad holding. But it's a skill in itself. Don't feel bad if you have trouble with the more complicated stuff. But don't be a bad pad holder, right? And don't be a disrespectful training partner as a pad holder or someone who's holding the pads. Make sure you're both aware of the combination. Start slow. Build it up. Usually for complicated stuff, I'll give more time. And it's just being aware. Holding pads is part of the training. You don't want to hold pads? Well, too bad. you got to get used to it. It is part of the training. So learn how. It's not very complicated. You can learn pad holding through YouTube videos and then you just practice. That's the main thing. Um, so there is that. So the next ones are, I'm going to play two, The Importance of Realism and uh, one he later wrote. Sorry, confusing. 
providing realistic tax and training, and then the importance of realism, just as a general concept. So I'm going to play them both back to back, and then I'll kind of talk because they're kind of interrelated. So uh, have a listen. Providing realistic attacks in training. As I mentioned a few times in this series and in my original Are You a Good Training Partner post, providing a realistic attack is a very important for martial arts training. Being able to provide that for your partner is an important component in learning proper techniques and of being a good partner in general. This post will focus on how to go about providing such attacks. Safety, as always, is extremely important, as is communication. So coming out of the gate swinging and throwing your fist attack of the drill like a raging bull is probably a bad idea. However, once you have those first couple of attacks out of the way, and each person is comfortable with the movements involved in the defense, it is time to up the intensity and speed, i.e. the realism of your attacks. Always let your partner know you are going to be notching it up and understand how to do so in a safe manner, which can mean different things for different attacks. Let's start with striking. Upping the intensity doesn't mean trying to knock your partner out, but should definitely involve increasing the speed of your attacks. It's important to learn these adjust adjustments while still keeping the power low. You can punch or kick quickly without throwing your whole power into a strike. Some people refer to this as pulling your punches. I prefer to think of it as pretending to hit a brick wall. You know you don't want to hit it with all your might, as you will likely break your hand, but you can still hit it quick and solidly. Keeping on target is also important. I learned early on in my Krav career that if you do nothing or fail at the defense, you should get hit. So the strike needs to be directed at the intended target, chin, nose, knee, groin, etc. Or the movements need to defend against the strike will be different from how they will be in reality. And this isn't, effect, isn't effective training. People sometimes get into the habit of knowing how the defense is supposed to work, and as a result, start throwing punches to where they end up after they have been deflected rather than where they should be landing. If I'm supposed to be firing a punch to the head, but you punch to the side of my head, how do you know the parry will really work? Grabs and holds. With grabs and holds, I have found that once you have put the defender in a hold with enough force that they must struggle, I simply lock my arms or legs into a place and resist movement rather than applying more pressure. This allows you to really make the person fight to get out without risking hurting them or choking them out in the case of a headlock or chokes. Of course, the nuance of this depends on the size of the two partners or the size difference between them. Speed can also be important here. As in Krav, we practice both avoiding getting put in the hold as well as how to get out of it if we fail at the first task. So when attempting to put someone into a hold, like striking, like with striking, do it quickly in order to uh, imitate a real-life situation. The jarring force this can produce is also important, as it's a stimulus that can disrupt and off-balance. Someone which 
is an important factor, but in training your defense technique and preparing you for the stress of real life of attacks, an important aspect of effective training. Lastly, once you have quickly and with enough force put your partner into the desired hold or lock, try to keep it on. Really, make your partner struggle and work with them. If you just remove all force at once, they try to start to escape, you really aren't really helping them build the technique and prepare for a real-life encounter. Finally, get verbal. This is something that I find very lacking in a lot of partners. Just think back to the last time you were in class and things were either calm and quiet or people were laughing and having fun. Did you really feel like you were defending yourself? Hey, I get it. It is great to have fun and training and everyone should feel safe and comfortable there. But just as we like to imitate a real life scenario with the attacks and force used, physical attacks almost always come with a verbal component. People don't often walk up to you silently and throw a punch. This also offers you a chance to practice your stage 2 self-defense, de-escalation. Again, this can be very uncomfortable stimulus. So it is essential that you are aware of how it feels. I have startled training partners simply by yelling "Hey!" or "Arg!" at them. This verbal action was enough to disrupt their defense. Similarly, imitating the behavior of drunk, high, or deranged people can also be beneficial training component. Again, making people feel safe and comfortable is very important. So communication is very much key here, but it is part of training that should not be ignored. I have found that people I have trained with for a while and I'm very comfortable with understand the importance. If we were able to get quite aggressive with each other, really simulating some distressing street situations. Putting all this together can make for some really good training. But most importantly, you need to communicate with your partner so that everyone feels safe, comfortable, and knows the benefit of added realism. Written by Evan J. Utkim Yellowbelt. Audio by Jonathan Fader. The importance of realism. The importance of realism in Kramaga martial arts and self-defense training is a continuation of are you a good training partner? Whether your goal for training in self-defense or martial arts is able to defend yourself on the street, competition fighting, or merely to get into shape to learn new skills, one thing that should be present in your training for it to be any way successful is realism in your training. Now there is a time and a place for this along with other aspects of your training for it to be successful and I am not suggesting sacrificing one for the other. When a new technique is being learned, at first taking things slow and easy is the best way often to figure out body movements, dynamics, and train muscle memory but then comes time to drill and stress test. Now, As anyone who's been attacked in the street can tell you, it is extremely uncomfortable and stressful, both physically and mentally. And for you to be able to react effectively in real-life situations, you must be able to train under conditions as closely resembling those in real life as possible. Likewise, if you are training for competition, whilst the stakes might not be life and death, you can guarantee your opponent is going to be giving it their all and expecting you to do the same. And if your goal was to simply get into shape, the metabolic demand of an energetic and committed opponent is going to be a lot higher than that of a lackluster one. Which brings me to my point 
I have trained with lots of different people over the years in martial arts world, ranging from security to law enforcement to the old soldier or ex-soldier, and even a few pro fighters, and then everyone else from committed students to the casual attendees. One thing that makes the biggest difference in my experience as to whether or not your training partner is helping you get the best out of your training is their ability to bring realism to the situation or technique. And by this, I mean if you are training to get out of a choke, they better be putting a good choke on you or your training isn't going to do much good for you. Once again, there is a a time and a place for everything. And if you are a seasoned practitioner and you're training with a newbie or less experienced partner, I don't mean go balls to the walls and leave them open without any hope of actually executing the technique they are supposed to be learning. You obviously have to match your power and intensity to an appropriate level, but make sure it is challenging for them. There is usually less of a problem here for the more experienced person, but as the less experienced person, you better be bringing your all to the drill. I can't tell you how many times I have had a newer person try to put a chokehold on on me the more resembled a neck massage or a hug than as soon as I started to resist at all, they just completely let go. This is because this is becomes very frustrating as the whole drill becomes largely useless for the person being attacked. It doesn't remotely resemble a real attack for those wanting to learn, to defend themselves, or jump into competition fight. As far as getting into a shape or learning something new goes, you're burning little to no calories and learning not much. So here's a word to those whom I'm talking about. People come to classes to learn to fight. That means they expect to get grabbed, kicked, punched. You're not going to offend anyone by being physical. Two, use this time when you're playing the attacker to work on your own punches, kicks, grabs, footwork, and look at the technique from the other side and what you might be having trouble with or how you can improve. Three, if you are going too hard on your partner, will tell you as long as there is a mutual respect, this should not be a problem. As a new person, this can take a minute to get used to and figure out, but don't take too long because in the meantime, you're not doing yourself or anyone else a favor. Written by Evan J. Utikam Yellow Belt. Okay, if it wasn't clear to you regarding Krav Maga, we want to mimic realism as reasonably possible. Now, caveat, your brain, sports psychologists have sort of proven this, doesn't always know the difference between literally doing it and imagining you're doing it. And you can actually relate that to trauma and the color code. If you think there's a threat and you keep thinking there's a threat, your body's going to react as if there's a threat. So there is that. The thing is, is that if your Kramaga class is mostly kicking a bag or punching a bag, you're not doing Kramaga. I don't give a fuck what your instructor is saying, and I am going to be that aggressive about that. If you're only ever hitting a bag and calling it Kramaga, that is not Kramaga. It is just impossible. Now, if you're just beating the shit out of each other and calling it Kramaga, you're morons. Okay, so let me just put there's the economy of the extremes. You need to practice as reasonably close to real as possible. Now, as far as training outdoors, let's just, again, you don't always have to. The idea that you always have to. If if the students you're training understand that concrete is hard and it's going to suck falling on concrete and they understand it, they don't have to train on concrete. Where I would change that is for law enforcement or uh, 
jobs that require certain tools, certain uniforms, then I think you need to train at least you know a tenth of the time with that gear on because it'll dramatically change how you function. You need to get the basics without the gear on, but you also need to train with the gear on. But for the average person who doesn't have a job, you don't always need to go ham out out in, real, in the real world. You can if the group wants to. Um, just know injuries will go up. Scrapes, bruises will go up. It's inevitable. So you do it safely, right? Um, things that everyone was discussing is if you're going to choke each other, choke each other, right? A choke, for example, I um, the thing is like front chokes or not rear naked chokes, but like air chokes, I say... If you've left the train, if you were training for an hour, let's say we're drilling it for like 20 minutes. In that 20 minutes, it should be fairly uh, reasonable that the people leave with red marks around their neck, right? Or if you're doing grabs, you're not grabbing hard enough. If they don't have slight marks, I'm not talking about massive bruising. That's just being obnoxious training partner. If you're 250 pounds again and they're 100 pounds and you grab them so hard, they leave with like black marks around their wrist. That's just kind of a bit too much, but there should be some marking. Of course, in such cases where it say it's a woman, I always say, listen, I got these bruises during Krav Maga. It's good marketing because otherwise people get asked and they start assuming things that may not actually be correct. So you have to do that. But... If you train with no aggression. Now, I'm just saying it's actually easier for me to make someone more aggressive than to take someone who's hyper-aggressive and bring them down because that hyper-aggressive person has a lot of issues that need to be worked out. Now, someone who can't be aggressive at all or refuses also does, but I find most people who aren't being aggressive, it's just they're concerned about hurting someone. And the rule at our school is your partner will tell you if you're going too hard. Now, you do have to use a little bit of discretion, but Karis, one of our up-and-coming soon-to-be instructors at some point when COVID settles down and we can get it back to normal, um, says, I will tell you if you're hitting too hard because a lot of guys don't want to hit her hard. And she is specifically saying, I want to be hit harder, right? So the rule at UTKM is, one, be aware of your size difference. But outside of that, two, if they tell you it's too hard, then it's too hard. But start slow, build it up, and then they'll tell you what's too hard. So go hard enough that you're giving resistance. If you do not give resistance at all, you're not training properly. You need to not just train the techniques, you need to train the nervous system. Now, a good example that I often see or hear people criticizing, specifically in aura, not specifically, realistically in Krav Maga is, oh, someone's just doing a static threat, right? Um... And they're just holding the gun. And they're like, nobody attacks like that. Well, first of all, they do. You can see it in YouTube video. People do do static gun threats and static knife threats. You see it all over the internet, so stop saying that. But they're, they, they are right that sometimes it's not static. So you start with the static, and then you build it up. You know, in my novice curriculum for knife stuff, we start drilling all the basic stuff, and then we start adding it in, and then we start combining it. Then we say, gear up, and you just go. And then all of a sudden, the aggression level goes through the roof because we're simulating real life. I do have to reel it back a bit because if you go full ham with a knife, both parties go a little, not, not a real life training knives. Just to be clear, um, people go crazy and you realize the only way you can stop something that aggressive is by hurting the other person, literally. So part of uh, training realistically is also understanding that realistically, if that was a real knife, they'd have to kick you so hard that you're going to stop. So part of realistic training isn't just you need to be aggressive and, and press hard enough or attack with intent. It's realizing that 
if you don't respond to a degree as if what they did just worked, they can't learn the correct muscle memory. Also, their next step is to escalate the violence. So if in training, you're just so much bigger and stronger than them, they literally, even in training, only have one option, and it's to physically hurt you if they're capable of it. So you do have to realize there is a sort of scale between training realistic enough and being too much that someone's going to get injured. And and for a lot of people, that can be difficult. You know, if I go to some countries, they're like, oh, I don't care if I got a broken nose. I don't care if I break a bone. Well, in North America and a lot of other countries, people do care. So you need to train hard enough that it's giving them the panic response internally. That's good. But not so hard that their only option is to panic and just destroy you. Now, I remember, I tell this story. I did Kyokushin for, you know, three, four months. The instructor was a giant uh, Hungarian-Austrian guy. I can't remember. And he's outweighed me by, like, no. And Kyokushin sparring is basically go ham. Not to the face. No punch to the face. Kick to the face. Just go hard. Body shots. Just nonstop. And this guy just going, going. I, dude, I, my punches do nothing to his body. He's so much bigger than me. My panic response kicked in. Kicked him in the nuts. Pretty hard. I probably thought I was doing an inside leg kick and I just kicked him in the nuts. He dropped. But that's something you have to realize. Are you going a little too hard for that individual? Are you going to elicit their actual panic response and are they going to do something hard? Can you afford to get your knee kicked out because you decided to go too aggressive as a training partner? Probably not. Groin one, you can probably recover, but it sucks. Knee or eye or throat can be very problematic. Right, So you do have to be aware. But, eh, am I so big to this person that I don't actually need to go that hard to give them realism? Otherwise, they're going to panic. Uh, ground stuff, it often comes to that. And then I just tell you, you need to learn how to grapple. Go, go do jiu-jitsu, go do wrestling. Because it is that difficult to hold off a much bigger opponent who kind of knows what they're doing. So anyways, realism is super important in Krav Maga. If you don't do it somewhat realistically, and if you're not causing some discomfort emotionally, panic in a person ever in your training, it's not karma, it's not realistic. But if you're doing it that you're causing people to have nervous breakdowns or cause each other to have injuries, you school and you are too much. There is a balance. So understand that realism isn't just killing each other, but it's also not going so soft. You're not stimulating the nervous system. It is a hard balance, and a lot of people have trouble with it. It's just a thought. So the next one is related. Watch your power. Watch your power. As I have mentioned earlier in my series on being a good training partner, it is important that people feel comfortable while training, but also that they are challenged. If you have trained with John, you became co-founder, lead instructor for any period of time, you've probably heard him say, you can't cheat physics. This is true, and it becomes especially important to remember for the bigger and more athletic members of the class, though can be just as important for the new, inexperienced students. So I will tackle this topic with these two groups in mind. If you're a bigger person, let's say 82 kilograms, 180 pounds and above, you should be aware that even without putting in a lot of effort, body, your body can generate a lot of power. I mean, have you ever had someone much bigger than you bump into you by accident? Even if they really didn't mean it, you feel it. So it is important that if you are the size 
this size range, you remain hyper-aware of your body dynamics. Force of movement, speed, and movement range of motions while striking. Obviously, but also during grappling techniques, placing people in holds or controls at any time your body mass comes into contact with another person. The concerns are amplified exponentially as the size difference between training partners increase. A larger than average person with a smaller than average person, for example. So how do we work around this issue? 1. Think critically. Be aware that it can be a problem. And why, if you're training with a 180 pounder, simply saying, it's not my fault, I barely touched them, or I 80 pounder rather, as they go flying across the room, doesn't cut it. Yes, it is your fault. And no, the problem isn't that they just aren't tough enough. Don't take it personally. We're not calling you fat. You simply failed to consider that physics matter. So stop and consider who you're training with and realize that this may be an issue. Then adjust accordingly. 2. Communicate. Hey, let me know if I'm going too hard or how hard do you want to go are great ways to open the conversation. As you train with people more regularly, you will get a feeling for which the each person can handle, as well as what they are comfortable with. Again, with communication comes the understanding that you will likely have to be the one to do the adjusting. If there is a size difference, the bigger person has to accommodate the smaller. It's not personal in either direction. It's just physics. Communicate more. Inflammation flows both ways. Smaller people must speak up if their partner is going harder than they are comfortable with. This applies even when there isn't a size difference, as a disparity in your skill level or a presence of an injury will also necessitate more caution and really diligent power control. If there is any concern that your partner should be aware of, tell them. Communicate always. Keep that communication going through the session, as you will almost always, without realize it, slowly ramp up your powers. Checking in is a good thing for both parties. It maintains safety and gives your partners the chance to tell you if they are ready for a bit more heat. 3. Ease into it. Respect the fact, be it skill, strength, or toughness, your standards are not everyone else's. Go extra light and then notch it up till everyone is comfortable. What does going light or extra light mean? Well, for example, if you're striking, limit the amount of power you put behind your strike. This doesn't have to mean sacrificing speed or form. Just dial back the power, like you would if you were shaking a small child's hand versus shaking the rocks. How you go about this doesn't change just power. Simply when engaging in grabs and holds lets your partner struggle. Start with the, just the minimum amount of power to really make them work through the technique. As they improve, your pressure and realism should increase. You will figure out pretty quickly what your partner is capable of, and learning to feel for an opponent's reaction is important skill for you. This can also apply to pad holding. We do many drills where you as the pad holder are required to activate or engage to your partner by bumping, tapping, or pushing them with the pad. So be gentle till you establish the right amount of bump required. All of the above apply to grappling as well. 
Try not to rely on your size as a weapon. Muscling your way to victory may feel good, but always applying strength to overpower opponent prevents you from improving your actual skill with the techniques. Someday, you will encounter someone stronger than you. Then, there is the other part of the equation. If you are new to martial arts, even if you're small or training with a bigger, more experienced person, coming out guns a-blazing before you've learned correct technique can pose its own problems. Whether this behavior leads to injury to yourself by putting stress on your joints in positions that they are not able to handle, or results in sacrificing learning of the proper technique because you are moving too fast or just muscling your way through a problem, your training suffers. I have said this new people more than times than I count. Slow down, take it easy until you understand the movement, and then slowly up the speed, power, and intensity as your skill increases. This also reduces the very likely chance that you will injure your partner by throwing an uncoordinated attack that goes nowhere near where the drill intended to. So what can you do to mitigate inexperience? Well, same as above. One, think critically. Accept the fact that you are new and be aware that being overly enthusiastic can be a problem. All of us started out looking like crap throwing our first few punches. No one is judging you, and if they are, find a different school because these people aren't into learning or teaching. You are just new, keep that in mind, and adjust your experience for how classes are going to look for you for a little while. Self-defense, fighting, and violence in general are foreign concepts for most people. Give yourself the time to learn. 2. Communicate. Hey, I'm new, bear with me while I get the hang of this. Or, I've never done this technique, let me know if I'm doing something wrong. People aren't going to run away from you because you're new, nor will they judge or make fun of you, so tell them. You will get a lot more out of the session if you're up with, with your training partner and keep communicating going. Ask questions, look at what they do, and ask them why they do it or how it works. 3. Relax. Take into consideration everything above. Adjust your expectations and allow the process to work. Breathe slowly, slow down, and focus on the technique. There will be a time and a place for adding in aggression, power, and intensity, but let that time come naturally and don't force it. All of this is very important to keep everyone in the gym safe, comfortable, and progressing through the learning process. But don't fall into the trap of making things too easy and not challenging your partner. I will cover the nuances of this in more detail in my next post, Providing a Realistic Attack, written by Evan J. UTKM Yellow Belt, audio by Jonathan Fader. With great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben, Spider-Man. It is a thing that can be applied to so many things. As you're seeing now, globally, politically, leaders think becoming authoritarian and the do what I say, not as I do is somehow being a good leader. Most of them are showing how shitty they are and it actually is. When it comes to training, though, watch your fucking power. Now, Evan brought up tons of great points. They're all, 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 all important. Think critically, so important. And communicate, so important. Now, it depends what you're doing. Now, in Kramaga, I want to mix people of different shapes and sizes. But I want to say, if they're hitting too hard, let them know. Now, often bigger individuals, um, let's say 180 pounds and up, 
200 up for sure, but under 180 pounds and up, you have a physics on your side to a degree that I don't think you realize. Now, often you tell in any martial art, stop using your power, stop using your power, stop using your power. A lot of people actually take it as an insult because they're like, no, I'm using my skill. It's like, no, you're using your power. A lot of people just don't understand how strong they are. Right now, I'm not talking about some small guy with old man strength or farmer strength or something like that. I'm talking about someone who's just big. You, your 10% is that other person's 100% from a physics perspective. Sometimes it's just say I'm just saying. You need to check your ego and realize you are stronger. Now, an aspect to that is I want to be challenged. Uh, yes, I would like you to be challenged too. And honestly. I don't even know if I want to take private lessons from people over 200 pounds anymore because I cannot physically give them a challenge with bear hugs. I cannot physically give them a challenge with chokes, rear naked chokes, sure, but like uh, the other chokes, it's just not possible. So like, let's talk professional fighters. There's a reason they bring in training partners that match their size because they're emulating something. Often heavyweight fighters will not train in any serious fashion with, you know, a lightweight fighters. Skill level is being comparison. They're going to hurt them. Now, of course, it depends on the style of what you're fighting. And you can certainly do it, but you have a distinct advantage. If you're a big person and I'm telling you to stop hitting so hard and you're getting offended, grow up. You're just stronger than them or stronger than me most of the time. I have tons of students that are way stronger, faster, more explosive than me. Right? That's just reality. Acknowledging that doesn't make me think anything less of myself. It doesn't think that I'm belittling myself. It's just reality. And we need to live in a reality. You're 200 pounds, they're 100 pounds. And I partner you with them. It's because I want you, one, to understand how strong you are and teach you how to control your power. And I want that smaller person to learn listen, there are bigger fish out there. And you need to go, you need to go a little harder. Right, If you're training with a much bigger person, as long as they're not a total baby, you can go much harder when you're smaller. And when you're much bigger, you have to learn to control your power. Part of self-defense is learning to control your power. Learn how strong you are. It matters because you could be the difference between self-defense, defense, legally, and jail time. Dude, you're 200 pounds. You hit them. You're like, I hit them lightly and they're dead. Well, other people may not understand use of force. I do not believe the whole like juries are made of your peers i don't believe that because the lawyers just pick and choose people who are appropriate uh in any use of force case uh peers should be people who know you but also who understand use of force that's technically what peers are you know they want to they want to of course uh, remove biases which is completely understandable but i don't consider juries peers not the way they're selected anymore they're not my peers they don't know shit about use of force so they're going to look at a giant human being who just cold cocked them and killed them accidentally as excessive force unfortunately that's just the way it is right the law does not favor larger people in physical confrontations it just doesn't in western countries at least and if you're smaller people can get away with a lot more they just can so you have to be aware are you big do you need to control your power it's super important are you small can you increase your power? You have to know what your physical capabilities are. Who are you training with? Can I go harder? Or can I go softer? You know the rule of you can't tell them. If you don't learn to communicate that someone is hurting you or is hitting too hard, you're going to have problems in life, not just in training. Right? So you have to learn to communicate effectively. And if you're getting annoyed at me as the bigger person because I put you a smaller grow up, Kamaga is about more than that. 
you'll I'll, sometimes I'll let you train with people who are going to challenge you. Sometimes I'm going to put you with people who are not going to challenge you. I'm trying to develop more than just one thing in all my students. So it is what it is. And I understand it's frustrating, but you're basically not accepting the entire learning process of Krav Maga, which is teaching you self-defense, which includes understanding your own power and what you're able to do to other people. Right? So Devin covered a lot of this pretty damn well thinking critically and communicate huge in, uh, huge thing but also being aware of how strong you are compared to other people it's super super important right makes sense so uh you know i think i actually covered listening to the instructor in in turning up there. i'm going back to his original post i definitely talked about listening to the instructor and let me see providing yep watch your distance so watching your distance what i think that really means is you got to learn your ranges you learn it through important because a lot of people don't know their ranges yet and they're very the classic spastic white belt and all of a sudden they jerk in and they smoke the person or if they're holding pads and they're standing too far away. Of course, I blame the person because the attacker is usually right, not the pad holder in that case. So just learning your distance, how close do you need to be from training uh, so you don't hurt the opponent so that you give realistic training, etc. It's just through practice. So if you're not sure how to do it safely, start slow, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, build it up. Right. So uh, I think my final thoughts are being a good training partner will enhance your training experience because you develop your training partners, which then en enhances your training. The better your training partners are, the better your experiences are. The better you are as a training partner, the more people will want to train with you. I know students that people don't really want to train with them. And I feel bad, but I'm not here to babysit adults to that degree. I will tell students that I have a few students. I've had a few students. I've had lots of students. They just stand there. When it's like, go grab a partner, they just stand there. And they're always the odd person out. And I tell them, when I say go find a partner, just go find a partner. Unless someone really doesn't like you, they're probably going to say, okay. And they'll just suck it up for the 10 minutes that you have to be partnered with. It's not a lifetime mating ritual, so get over it. But if you're a bad training partner that you don't hold pads right, you're overly aggressive or you don't provide enough aggression, you don't pay attention, you're rude, you're off topic all the time, you're not helping, no one wants to train with you, which means the good people don't want to train with you, which means your training suffers. So learn to be a good training partner. It's really that simple. You'll be better for it, your training partners will be better for it, and your school will be better for it. Learn that. And your training will help you so much more learn to walk in peace. So thank you for listening to this blog post series on how to be a good training partner based off of a loose series by Mr. Evan. Again, you can listen to the podcast I did with him, uh, episode 64. And uh, if you want to support this podcast or UTKM again, you can go to utkmblog.com. Hit button on the menu that says support us you can either simply give us money i like that you can sign up to utkmu.com and sign up to online training curriculum again it's self-guided you do what you want with it i encourage you to do it with kramaga instructors regardless of their organization so that you don't get hurt and you have the proper facilities or you can simply click on the amazon affiliate links there uh, of products that i use or so i'll add more as we go so thank you for listening. I hope you're having a wonderful day and you can learn to be an awesome training partner.
listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. <laughs>